Good morning. As Brad said, my name is Taylor, and usually at 9.30 on Sunday morning, I'm hanging out with our awesome 7th and 8th grade crew just over here. If you're a 7th or 8th grader and you're in here with us right now, would you just wave at me? Wow. I'm looking. Keep waving. Okay. Man, good job, guys. Now I'm going to be watching you, especially you, Amari. I see you. I'm glad you're in the front. I'm just kidding. My name's Taylor, and it's been an honor to serve here over the last year or so uh, with my wife, Mel. Um, I think we have a picture, actually, to put on the screen of my wife, Mel, and I, and our son, Tobin. There's our son, Tobin. Yeah. Um, I must add that today is my wife, Mel's birthday. Have to say that. Someone asked me, what are you giving your wife for a birthday? And I said, a sermon. Probably not the best answer. I'll give her more than that. Don't worry. Well, when was the last time that you just assumed something? You know, it's been said that assumption is the lowest form of knowledge, and yet we all make assumptions, don't we? We believe something to be true that we haven't actually verified. When was the last time that you did that? Maybe you just assumed that your spouse was picking up the kids. Maybe you just assumed that you knew the location of a meeting. Where is everybody? Maybe you assumed that there was no practice after school. Why is coach calling me? Right? Maybe you assumed your parents would never find out. Hmm. Assumption for all of us often leads to misunderstanding, uh, misinterpretation, and sometimes just a mess. However, making the wrong assumption can also lead to danger. Like taking a big drink of scalding hot coffee, assuming it's cool enough to drink. Maybe like assuming that you remembered to turn the stove top off. Or assuming that there's no one next to you on the interstate before you change lanes. Dangerous. But I'd like to propose to you this morning that the most dangerous assumption you or I could ever make is to just assume that you are a child of God when in fact you are not. To just assume that you're a Christian when, in fact, you are not. And you know we're not supposed to do this. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us to examine ourselves, to see whether we are of the faith. To see whether we are of the faith. Are you a Christian? Am I a real Christian? If so, how could we ever know? Well, the title of the message this morning is Authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity. And we're going to see in God's word together three imperatives that will reveal to us the nature of authentic Christian faith. And it's my prayer that by the time we leave here this morning, we will all have a clearer vision of what it truly means to be a child of God. Are you with me? We come this morning to the beautiful New Testament book of Philippians. If you have a Bible, um, you can open it there or turn it on whatever the case might be, to Philippians, which is in the New Testament, kind of near the back, right-hand side, chapter 3. This book of the Bible is written by the Apostle Paul to the first century church in Philippi, words that are just as true and relevant to us today as they were on the day they were written. And we jump in here to chapter 3, where Paul begins by punctuating the theme of this entire letter, that of supernatural joy. Do you see what he says here in verse 1? Finally, brothers, rejoice 
in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice literally means to be glad because of grace. It's the theme of this entire letter. But interestingly, this is the very first time Paul connects joy to the person of Jesus. Because for the child of God, we know all too well that our joy is not tied to a circumstance, but to a Christ. Amen? I read once where Adrian, the old pastor Adrian Rogers asked a Christian friend, how are you doing? To which his friend replied, pretty well. Under the circumstances, Pastor Rogers said, what are you doing under there? Under the circumstances, right? Christian hope and Christian happiness are not based upon a situation, but upon a risen Savior. And we're going to see how this is so as we continue on this morning. Verse 1 goes on. Do you see it with me? To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. If you're taking notes this morning, this is our first imperative. Listen up. Listen up. Paul is about to repeat himself. He's writing the same things. If we did a cursory reading of the book of Philippians, we'd realize he's about to repeat a theme that he first brought up in the first chapter, verses 27 through 30, where he warns the church of false teachers, fake Christians seeking to infiltrate the church with a corrupted gospel message. And this is a common theme throughout the entire New Testament. God's word distinguishing between the false and the true, between the religious and those who are truly righteous in Christ. Pastor and Bible teacher John MacArthur says that this theme runs as an unbroken thread through the entire fabric of the New Testament. So Paul doesn't mind talking some more about it in this letter. Why? Because A, as humans, we're prone to forget, are we not? And B, because this is so important, it's for the safety of the church. You know, repetition often indicates importance, right? It makes me think of an address. P. Sherman, 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney. (laughs) Why are you laughing? P. Sherman, 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney. Anybody know what that's from? Finding Nemo, the legendary movie. Finding Nemo, where Marlin, the clownfish, and Dory, the other fish, that's blue, go on a search for Marlin's lost son, Nemo, in the Pacific Ocean. And the only hope, the only sense of direction they have to cling to is that name and address that they read off of a pair of lost goggles. P. Sherman, 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney. It's so important. And so what does Dory do throughout the entire movie? She repeats it, right? And so now it's burned into the brains of an untold number of millennials who grew up on the movie, right? (laughs) Amen, if you're a millennial, and probably many others as well. P. Sherman, 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney. Repetition. Repetition indicates importance. In the same way that Dory would not stop repeating that address back to herself because she was prone to forget because it was so important, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, we need to keep talking about this. The danger of a phony faith. We talked about it before, but we ain't stopping now. This is just too important. It's for your safety. So look at verse 2. Verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Here's our second imperative. Look out. First was listen up. If you're taking notes. Second was, is look out. We see it three times here. You see it? Look out, look out, look out. Paul begins a contrast in this verse between the false and the true. In this verse, we see three vivid descriptions of the fake Christian 
And then in verse 3, we'll see three vivid descriptions of the true Christian. And as we study these verses together, it's imperative for us to understand the background of the situation. They used to tell me in Bible college, context is king. When you're seeking to accurately interpret God's word and apply it to your life as we are this morning, context is king. So what's the situation here? What's been going on? Here's what we need to understand. In the first century world, after Jesus ascended back to the Father in heaven, there had arisen a sect of so-called Christians, also known as Judaizers, who have acknowledged Jesus as, yes, Savior of the world, but who are still keeping a tight grip on their Jewish customs, claiming them necessary for salvation. They would, in effect, say something like this. Jesus is indeed the Son of God and Savior of the world, but in order to really be right with God, you need to become Jewish as well. In other words, Jesus is great, just not enough. Jesus, his work, it was wonderful, just not sufficient. You also need to acquiesce to Jewish custom and ceremony, namely circumcision. Circumcision, the medical procedure performed on eight-day-old infant boys, was the crux of what it meant to be Jewish, a Jewish badge of pride. Before Jesus had come, circumcision had served as an external mark of mankind's internal need for change. Circumcision had been instituted by God as a sign and a reminder of the need for our sin to be removed, to be cut away, as it were, a reminder of our need for a savior. So now, Philippians chapter 3 and today, that Jesus had indeed come, now that his work of salvation had indeed been finished as he declared triumphantly from the cross, the Judaizers were not ready to let go. They were arguing that Jesus plus Jewishness equaled salvation and right standing with God. You say, Taylor, what's the big deal? I mean, they, they believe in Jesus. They just wanted to go the extra mile, right? Do a bit extra. What's so bad about that? Well, let's take it from Paul under the inspiration of God's spirit. What does he think of these Judaizing Christians? First, we see, look out for the, do you see it? Dogs. Look out for the dogs, right? Would you raise your hand if your family owns a dog? Any proud dog owners? That's great. That's great. Okay, second question. Raise your hand if you own the kind of dog that gets accused of being a cat, like I do. Anybody like that? So our little black puffball Tobin is awesome. He's, okay, he's always happy. Um, he loves to lick. He loves to play. He loves every person he's ever met. He's an incredible pet. But such was not always the case with dogs. They weren't always known as man's best friend. Did you know? In fact, at the time this is written in the first century, dogs were savage, really wild, untamed beasts that roamed the streets, fed on garbage, often attacked children. They carried disease, and sometimes a single bite from a dog would prove to be fatal. Look at the person sitting next to you and say, yikes. Yikes, they were no pet at all. And this is the vicious animal. The vicious animal that Paul uses to describe these people attempting to add to the gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, pulling no punches, utterly offensive and terribly ironic because the word dog is the same word. It's the word Jews loved to self-righteously call their, their Gentile neighbors. And Paul flips the script. You think you're so pure and holy calling non-Jews dogs? Hey, you're the real dogs. Wow. Here's how this matters. 
If anyone ever tries to tell you that you must take communion in order to be saved, or perform some ceremony, or worship on a certain day of the week, or do some custom, or say some prayer, or talk to a priest, or even be baptized, as wonderful and important as baptism is, anyone who tells you that you have to do any of these things in order to have right standing with God, according to his word, is a vicious beast that you and I must be on the lookout for. We read on. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the, you see verse 2, look out for the evildoers. Look out for the evildoers. He calls them evil, wicked, deplorable. Again, in shocking irony, Paul turns to these people who are saying, we're the ones who are right with God. You need to be more like us. And he says, you're evil. The very ones claiming to be righteous are in fact exposed as being merely religious and self-righteous. These people weren't out there murdering. No, they weren't out there robbing. They weren't out there abusing people. They were just adding some things to the cross of Christ. But we must make no mistake about it that adding to the finished work of Jesus is not merely to be discouraged. It must be labeled and rejected as evil, as evil. And in scathing sarcasm, Paul finishes this verse 2 description of these fake Christians, these posers, by saying, look out for those who, you see it, mutilate the flesh, who mutilate the flesh, mocking their sacred circumcision, which literally means to cut around. Paul uses this word mutilate, which literally means to cut off. He says, you think you're being so sophisticated, so dignified, but in reality, you are pointlessly foolishly self-mutilating. You're lost. You're lost. Is adding human effort to the gospel really such a big deal? (laughs) We must declare this morning with absolute certainty a resounding yes. God tells us in his word that we're saved by grace, right? Through faith, that it's not our own doing. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Would you repeat that after me? Would you say Jesus? Jesus plus nothing equals everything we need to be made right with God. And there's nothing that we can do to add to or to take from his finished work. And so we arrive at verse three and find our third imperative. Let go. Listen up, look out, let go. Let go. That is, of the externals, let go of appearances, let go of human effort. We read, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Oh, this single verse, loved ones, is perhaps the most beautiful and clear explanation in all of God's word of what it means to be a true Christian. And we find in it three characteristics. Three characteristics of authentic Christian faith. Pivoting from verse 2, Paul contrasts the false by, with the true by saying, we're real. We're the true circumcision. Do you see how he uses that language? He's using circumcision language here. Saying, in effect, the fake Christians think circumcision makes them right with God. But we're the ones who are truly right with God. We've had the sin of our heart cut away by Christ. So what does it mean to be of the true circumcision, to be truly righteous before God. Three things, and man, are they awesome. First, real Christians worship by the Spirit of God. See that? Worship by the Spirit of God. If you're taking notes, again, you can write that word worship. Worship. Real Christians 
worship. To worship is to ascribe worth to something, right? To assign weight to something, to identify something as superior and ultimate. And we all do it. You say, Taylor, I'm not religious. I'm not a Christian. I don't worship. And to that I would say, friend, actually I believe that you do. As J.D. Greer states in his book, Gospel, when something becomes so important to you, or I, that it drives your behavior and commands your emotions, you are worshiping it. People who aren't religious at all do this just as much as religious people. So while you might be here this morning and sure, you're not worshiping God, perhaps you've been worshiping your significant other. Perhaps you've been worshiping your house or your boat or your children or your bank account or some vacation destination. In the moment, a human being hears the gospel and responds to it in trusting faith and casts themselves upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's spirit comes in and takes up residence. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says it. You are a temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you. For the very first time, In your life, God appears more beautiful to you than anything else in the universe. This is what it means to be a real Christian. For the first time in your life, you have a supernaturally stimulated love for God, longing for God. You want nothing more in life or death than God himself. Your purpose for living has suddenly just become to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this, it can't be manufactured. Real worship, true worship, cannot be contrived by the human spirit. It can't be mustered up. Real worship is merely our response to the supernatural stimulus of God's spirit alive in us. The spirit of God stirs up in the child of God an irresistible desire for and devotion to God. Do you want to know that your faith is real this morning? Look to your heart. Look at your heart. Do you love God and desire God? internally. Internally. Too often you and I rely on external proofs for proving our faith, don't we? Hey, looky, looky, look over here, look over there. See, I'm a good Christian. I must be a Christian. Look, I did this. See, I said that. See, I I got to preach on Sunday. I must be a good Christian. That kind of thing. You say, Taylor, what are some examples of that? Well, I'd like to share just a few ways that Christians, um, that people like you and I are tempted to Judaize as it were, looking to external things as proof of salvation rather than to an internal heart of worship. First of all, first thing we often look to is a salvation event, a salvation event. Maybe you raised your hand or walked down an aisle or prayed a prayer. Maybe there's a specific date written in the front of your Bible, the day I became a Christian. Well, all of that is wonderful, but according to God's word, none of it guarantees that your faith is real. In fact, many real Christians don't know the day or time they came to saving faith. Their coming to Christ was more of a process. And they know that one day they weren't believing and they kept searching and they kept learning and they kept thinking. And before they knew it, man, I believe. I believe. When did it happen? I don't know. But I believe, right? More of a process. So while having an event or an experience or a a date and time isn't wrong, it's no insurance for a phony faith. A second thing we often look to after a salvation event is moral living. Moral living, doing good to others, being a kind neighbor, giving money to the poor, making an honest living, trying not to swear, fighting for good causes, trying to make a difference, all great. But being a moral person is certainly no guarantee for having come to real saving faith in Jesus Christ. Tragically, hell will be filled. Hell will be filled with many wonderful people who lived morally but without Jesus. 
The third thing we often look to externally is theological understanding. Theological understanding. You and I can know so much about God. We can have conversations about Him, read books about Him. We can be God experts, so to speak, all the while never truly worshiping Him in our hearts. It's wonderful to study theology, but it's all too easy to have correct answers with no relationship. As the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, you can have perfect orthodoxy and be perfectly dead. Perfectly dead. And a fourth thing that we look to sometimes is religious activity. Uh, Maybe you got baptized. You might have taken communion. You might come to church every Sunday. You might have sung in the choir for the Christmas concert. You could be in a Bible study and there could be scripture verses hanging all over your home. But none of these things mean you're a true child of God, friend. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, used to speculate that only 20% of his congregation were truly saved. We can be so religious while never being truly righteous. The last thing, a fifth thing that we often look to externally is Christian ministry. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, On that day, judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Leading a small group, passing out bulletins, um, serving in the nursery, working at a church like I do. None of it means my faith is real. These five things are indeed good things, but they serve as no guarantee that I've been saved by grace through faith. You see, friends, in Philippians chapter 3 here, we learn that worship isn't so much about raising your hand as it is about having the right heart. That you can worship God just as well in an apartment as you can in an auditorium. That you, sh- you can worship God just as well driving your minivan as you can in a ministry center. You can worship God just as well in solitary as you can in a sanctuary because it originates in my heart. The Spirit of God. You want to know that your faith is legitimate, friend? When your heart has been miraculously brought to life by the Holy Spirit to see and exalt in the beauty of God, declaring Him worthy above all. Above all. Worship by the Spirit of God. Secondly, we go back to verse 3 here. True Christians glory in Christ Jesus. We might summarize this characteristic with the word wonder. Wonder, to stand in awe and amazement at the infinite worth of the Savior. The word glory literally means to boast with exultant joy about what a person is most proud of. And I was thinking this through, and what are you most proud of? It occurs to me that we often talk about what we're most proud of, don't we? What are you most proud of? Maybe it comes out in your speech, a new place to live, tell people about it, a new car, tell people about it, a new job grandkids, your son's batting average, the Notre Dame win last night, you name it. What are you proud of? So question, how often is Jesus first on your lips or mine? Henry Clay Trumbull said years ago, he said, I made a vow to God that changed my life. This was the vow. God, if you'll give me the strength, every time I have the opportunity to introduce the topic of conversation, it will always be of Jesus Christ. That is a man glorying in Christ Jesus. 
To be a Christian, friend, is to find all my pride in Jesus, all my boasting in Jesus, all credit for everything I have and am is in Jesus. He's my joy. He's my crown. He's my everything, as Paul would write later in this same chapter. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, I'd like to ask a series of questions right now, and I'd like for you all to respond with just two words, only Jesus. Can you do that with me? Let's try. Who is all the fullness of God in human form? Who humbled himself, took the form of a servant, and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross? Therefore, who has God exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above every other name? And who's at whose name will every knee bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord? And who is all we need in life and in death for forgiveness of sin and life everlasting? Thank you. Only Jesus. Wonder at the cross. Wonder at this Christ. Stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Amen. Amen. The second proof of authentic faith is wonder glorying in Christ Jesus. The third thing authentic Christians do, we see in verse 3. You see with me? Put no confidence in the flesh. We might summarize this characteristic of real faith with the word weakness. Worship, wonder, weakness. The true Christian puts no confidence in the flesh. When the New Testament speaks of the flesh, what does it mean? You know, simply put, we might think of the flesh in New Testament terms as this, my will, my way, apart from God. My will, my way, apart from God. And this is precisely what the real Christian has forever given up on. In contrast to a world that continually tells us to believe in ourselves, to search for hope inside ourselves, to focus on ourselves, to live by our impulses and do whatever makes us happy, the real Christian believes Otherwise, as Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Being a true Christian means death to my self-righteousness, death to my self-pity, death to my self-confidence, death to my self-sufficiency, death to my self-admiration, death to my self-help, and death to my self-love. In a just-do-you world, Jesus says, just die to you. Did you get that? In a just-do-you world, Jesus Christ turns to us and says, follow me. Just die to you. This isn't self-hate by any means. But as Tim Keller calls it, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. You want real freedom? It's found in the freedom of self-forgetfulness. A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Pursuit of God, self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. Self. And friends, it is to this veil of self that the cross of Christ has done its abolishing work. 
revealing to us the face and glory of God. You say, but Taylor, the world sees weakness as a bad thing. And it's true, isn't it? Weakness? The virtue we see on display with every scroll and every click is fight for your rights. Demand to be seen. Demand to be heard. Demand to be validated. Am I right? So while the Christian paradox that the way up is down might not help us fit in with the culture, it's the only way to fit in with Christ. To come empty-handed with no rights, no powers, no control, no resume, no trophies, no accolades or accomplishments, and consequently, no hope. Did you know that the very first words of Jesus' most famous sermon, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, for theirs is the kingdom. The Christian life is about becoming a beggar. It's about becoming broken. You can't follow Jesus and think you're something at the same time. You can't follow Jesus Christ and still think that you're pretty cool. You say, Taylor, how does this look practically? No confidence in the flesh. Well, I love what Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth says in her book, Brokenness, The Heart God Revives. She says that this looks like at least two things, letting the roof off and letting the walls down. No confidence in the flesh. First, by letting the roof off, She means I'm coming honestly to God, broken, sincere, needy, no more appearances, no more image to maintain, no more self-protection. I'm at the end of myself before you, God. Here I am, all of me, roof off. Here I am, humbled and broken. And I might say this is slightly easier than the second part, I think, letting the walls down. Letting the walls down, that is to say, coming openly and honestly to your friends, to your family, to your roommate, to your spouse, coming clean, being vulnerable. I don't have it all together. This is what no confidence in the flesh looks like. Roof off to God, walls down to others. No more Instagram perfect image, no more artificial appearances, but honestly, humbly, vulnerably, inviting God and others in. Loved ones, this is at the very heart of what it means to be a real child of God. For we know that he resists the the who? The proud, but gives grace to the humble. And as 2 Corinthians 12 says, his grace is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in weakness. In weakness. The refrain of the true Christian indeed. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Worship, wonder, weakness, three characteristics of real faith. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me right now and close your eyes as we reflect together. What is God saying to your heart right now? You may have hopped in your car and come to church this morning, assuming yourself to be a Christian. Maybe wrongly so. And you don't have to leave here that way. Why not leave here not assuming but certain my faith is real? Why not, friend? Ask God, God, what have I wrongly been wrongly associating with my salvation? 
What have I been wrongly associating with my salvation? Friends, Jesus is waiting with open arms for all of us this morning to let go, to let go of our striving, to let go of our assumption, our appearances, that we might get honest with him and with each other. Before I pray, I'd like to share the dying words of Buddha. Strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing in the dying words of Jesus Christ. It is finished. It is finished. Friend, if your heart is saying, give me Jesus this morning, I'd like to invite you right where you sit to pray in your heart to God and admit your need for Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. Confess to him. Get honest. Let the roof off this morning. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. Turn away from your sin. Give him everything. Fall upon his grace. Let go of everything else. Why not give your life to Jesus right now? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning that is alive, active, and piercing our hearts even now. Thank you for how you've spoken to us. God, I pray that some of these loved ones here would not leave this morning before responding appropriately to what you're telling them. May we all walk in grace-filled obedience, not assuming, but certain that your love has truly brought our hearts to life. We rejoice in the precious cross of Christ this morning and pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.